You are listening to the Impact Church Podcast. To learn more about Impact Church, visit us online at impactharlem.org. You can also check us out on social media. Man, Jesus is amazing. Amen. I'm excited this morning to have my good buddy Brandon. If you don't know him, He's led worship for us a couple of times here at Impact. He is planting a church along with his family and his launch team uh, over in the Martinez-Evans area uh, called Anchor Church. Right. And, and I, I love this guy because he has a heart for Jesus. He has a heart for the kingdom. He wants people to come to know who God is like we know who God mm-hmm. is. So we're just thankful to be able to partner with you and your family and your team. Man, we appreciate you being here this morning. We're excited about what God's going to say through you today. Thankful for you too, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. Impact Church, good to be with you this morning. Wow. Hey, open with me in your Bibles or your version app to James chapter 5. That's where we're going to be primarily, but we're going to hop around a little bit too. Uh, normally, I like to stick to a text and kind of work through it, but today's message really lends itself to looking at the whole counsel of God's Word, just all kinds of different areas. And what I love about the Bible, just, I mean, I really love the Bible. You're going to hear me say that a lot because it's changed my life. I'm getting into that when I share my story in a minute. But the cool thing about the Bible, the amazing thing about the Bible is that from cover to cover, there is threadedness. There is this common theme and they're like, you know, James uh, jives with Exodus and Leviticus jives with Jude. And I mean, the whole counsel of God's word is just perfect in unity, completely true and trustworthy. And so go with me to James chapter five, and we'll pick it up from verses 16 all the way down to 20. Oh, I want to talk to you today about getting real. That's actually the title of my sermon today. If there's a title for it, it's called get real, which typically is a kind of sassy way to say, um, you know, hey, quit that. Or, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of something we say in that kind of way. But today what I mean is authenticity through accountability. Because as I begin to hear from Pastor Dustin, what he wanted me to speak on today and where the heartbeat of the series was going is this, is that we desperately need authenticity in the church. It's actually the number one thing that drives people away from church is a lack of authenticity. It's this fake culture. There's things we do in the church. It's kind of interesting. Like there's, there's this one thing we do. Uh, it's called, it's called church face, as one pastor in the area puts it. He calls it church face. And so we show up to church and we go, hey, everybody, how's it going? You know, and everybody's just kind of smiling. You know, even if you're doing terrible, you just kind of put a smile on and go through it. And I'm not saying there's a time, there's not a time or place for that. Sometimes we do just have to kind of get on with things and try our best. But Sometimes within the church, we lack that authenticity, that genuineness, that it's just so refreshing in relationships, right? And relationships are so important within the church. In fact, I have a feeling you're here because someone either invited you or you knew someone here that brought you here or you met someone or God orchestrated something through relationships, And so our relationships have to be healthy. Well, the only way we can have healthy relationships is through authenticity and a genuine nature. And so, yeah, so so we have church space. We also have this other thing called the Christian F word. Does anybody know what it is? The Christian F word. We're we're not going to talk about the other F word. We're talking about the Christian F word. Anybody know? Fine. It's fine. How you doing? 
fine. I'm doing fine. It's okay. Really, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Anybody, uh, Friends fans from the 90s? I'm fine. It's fine. Um, all right, so um, there's actually a more common one, though. I work at Rooted Coffee House in Evans. It's one of my community jobs. I took that job literally to um, not only supplement income, but also to meet people, to get face-to-face with people in the community. If I'm going to plant a church in Columbia County, I need to be face-to-face with people that I don't know and that don't know Jesus or maybe do know Jesus. And so I just want to meet a lot of people. So I'm up front at the register. I'm in the coffee shop. You know, I'm asking people how they're doing as I'm swiping their card, different things like that, and getting their lattes, macchiatas, things like that. And they, and they always say this phrase, and I want to bring it up this morning. It's this phrase, and you've, you've heard it and you probably used it, okay? And I'm not here to pick on you if you've used it, because I've used it too, okay? And it's, how you doing? And then the response is, can't complain. Can't complain. What does that mean? Can't complain. I, I think I know what it. I think I know what people mean. Generally, it's like I'm better than I deserve. Like I'm thankful, and so I really can't complain. I mean, I have things I could complain about, but I think there is this feeling within us that we really can't complain about it because if we complain, if we if we did tell someone what we're going through, that we're going to be viewed negatively. And it's actually this hub sin we're going to revisit time and time again this morning called pride. Everybody say pride. Pride in the very beginning was the issue in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of mankind. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven and a third of the angelic realm when they rebelled against God. It, was all comes, it all comes down to pride. If you take each sin, it's like the irreducible denominator at the bottom of every sin. It's pride. And so we need authenticity in the church. We actually can complain in the right context. We actually can. And maybe it's not at the register at the coffee shop. I, 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 you know, I get it. I get that's hard. But we need somewhere where we go with that. So it's time to get real. And I think accountability is probably something that is missing in a lot of people's lives this morning. And that's why I'm excited to talk about it. So let's dive into a a theological foundation for accountability. If you're taking notes this morning, just go ahead and write down two things. This isn't going to come on the screen. It's just kind of bonus, all right? Vertical accountability and horizontal accountability. You can even draw arrows if you don't want to write those words. But vertical accountability, horizontal accountability. You know, accountability, if you really think about it, actually comes down to the character of God. Like, why, why are we supposed to be accountable, period? Well, it all comes from the character and nature of God. There's, there's a few things. First of all, God is the ultimate supreme being in the entire universe. He is God Almighty. He's the one true God over all things, the supreme king, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion and the Lamb, and so forth, right? There's three aspects of God's character that necessitate accountability. We're just going to go through them real quick. The first one is this. It's God's sovereignty, He is Lord over all. Hebrews 4.13, listen to this verse. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so the premise is this. God is over all, so we owe him an account because he's the supreme being. He is sovereign. Okay, the second characteristic is his justice. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10 speak to this. So whether we're at home or away, We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's 
God's sovereignty, there's his justice that we're accountable to God because we owe him that because he is the supreme being. He's perfect. He's holy, which is where we're going next. It's his holiness. Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. So we have this vertical accountability that it's at the start. So we're talking about today our horizontal accountability with one another. But I want you guys to see that this is rooted in our vertical accountability with God. And if this is healthy, if this is good, then this is going to be way better. And that's how worship works, right? Like if we're, um, if we are worshiping God faithfully, if we're living for Him, if the vertical relationship is good, then the horizontal relationships are going to be good as well. But let's take a look at this thing we call accountability within the church, the one another accountability. And the false view in the church is this. You've heard it before. You may have even said it before. It's my faith. Faith is a private matter. I don't, I don't need to discuss this with anybody. My faith is my faith. My sin is my sin. It's a private matter. I'm not going to take that to anyone else. Guys, that's dangerous territory. And I'm here this morning to encourage you, and I hope you leave today encouraged and inspired to pursue accountability in your life. And I realize this morning, in a lot of our lives, it is probably lacking. I'll even be honest with you. I'll be just completely transparent. At this point in my life, I'm in an in-between. Okay, like we moved from South Carolina. I had an accountability partner there. We met up every week. We asked the same 10 questions. It was fantastic. Love this guy. His name is Brent. Brent, if you're watching, love you, man. But, um, but we met up every single week. We were accountable to one another. When I moved, I have not I, I don't have an accountability partner right now. I don't have that specific relationship that I so deeply value. And so I'm not here to tell you, oh, I've got all this figured out. I'm the prime example of all this or anything. But I am here to tell you that Scripture speaks to this, and we can't ignore it. And I'm not ignoring it either. I'm actually working on it in my own life. And so I'm in the boat with you if this is something that uh, does not exist in your life right now. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's why we love the Bible. We want Christ's word to live and abide in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so there's this mandate, hey, admonish one another with all the wisdom that we have. It's out of love, right? It's not out of pride. We don't look at each other and you know, uh, correct each other because we want each other to feel shame. No, it's because we love one another. Part of loving your neighbor as yourself is holding each other accountable. So uh, there's really five effects of accountability. We're going to walk through them successfully uh, and uh, in succession. And, uh, and I want you to write them down this morning. The first one is this. The first effect of accountability or stage w- 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 uh, that we might call it is Vulnerability. Vulnerability. And vulnerability really is this. It's openness and honesty that brings depth to our relationships. Think about it. No good relationship exists without vulnerability, does it? Let me ask you a question this morning as you sit here. Are you vulnerable in your relationships? Now, we all know that person on Facebook that we're Facebook friends with, and they're too vulnerable on Facebook, right? It's like, it's always just like the closet's wide open and you just get the full view. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. But let me just encourage you this morning. Church can sometimes be a place where we come to consume rather than to connect. 
There is a consumer culture within the church. This isn't a surprise to some of you this morning. You've heard, I'm not the first person to talk about this. We've, we've heard about it. It's, I come to get, not I come to give to other people and, and unto the Lord. I come to consume. And we can get that on a podcast. We, we can consume content, content in a podcast form, in book form. We can do it without meeting with the local body. We can consume content that way. And we should. That's, that's not a bad thing to consume content. But if that's why we come, if that's why we gather together, we're missing out. God's design is for us to connect with one another in a way of vulnerability. It's a holy honesty. It's a balanced and wise honesty. You know, Jesus was vulnerable, right? If you think about the Gospels, think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the story of the life of Christ. Jesus was vulnerable. And to what advantage? What happened to Jesus when he was vulnerable? Yeah, he got hung on a cross. It didn't work out too well for him, did it? But it did, because the gospel, the good news of the entire world, was predicated on the fact that Christ was vulnerable. He loved to the point to where he allowed himself, and by the way, he was in complete control the whole entire time, could have called the whole thing off, could have called down some angels and just busted heads left and right, and been totally just and justified to do it because he is Lord over all creation. But he did not because he loved the world so much that he gave his life. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he let a guy named Judas betray him in his small group, by the way, in whom many of them never understood what he was really for. The disciples continually struggled with what Jesus was really saying. But then Judas, he was so vulnerable, he allowed Judas to do what he did to betray him to set up the whole thing. And why did he do that? Again, because of love. It's a risk of betrayal and hurt, guys. This is why many of us in the room, you go, I don't want to be vulnerable with people. Well, why? Well, because someone's going to take advantage of me. Someone's going to hurt. Because we got to open ourselves up to that. We can't be guarded in that way because here's what happens if we do. Here's what happens if we are guarded from vulnerability. We actually end up being the very thing that we're trying to avoid. Let me explain. Avoidance of vulnerability for fear of being ostracized or cast aside just increases isolation. That's all it does. It's self-defeating. It's vanity. And if you lack vulnerability in your relationships, not only will your relationships be shallow, you won't have the accountability that God has for you. You won't have the connections. You'll feel more alone than ever even if you're surrounded with people. And if all we ever do, guys, in church and in small groups, just think about your groups and how they function. Typically, like small talk has an expiration on it, okay? Like we can small talk about the weather and sports. That's not inherently evil, but we have to move beyond that. When do we actually ask each other in these environments, hey, so how are you really doing this week? Hey, I know you said you were good, but like, like how are, like how are you really doing? And I'm not talking about being nosy, or fishing for things, because we've all been there, right? Like, we're actually doing pretty decent. Someone's like, no, but tell me, like, how's it going? You're like, no, like, things really are good. And so we're not talking about that. But there is a time and place to be vulnerable. Let's talk about the second one this morning. So not only do we want this whole precursor of vulnerability, but we want confession to be a part. The second element is confession. Look at James 5.16. I told you we were going there. So let's open our Bibles and go to James 5.16. We're just going to read the first part of this verse here. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. So we have an explicit command in Scripture to confess sins to one another. So lest any of us come here this morning, including myself, and say, I'm just not going to do that. Guys, we have the Holy Spirit of God, the author of Scripture says, imperatively, like we don't get a choice in this, confess your sins to one another. Now there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And we're going to unpack some of that. But what I want to tell you is that there has to be someone in your life that you are confessing sin to. I'm not saying it needs to be like a group of 100 people or even 12, but like you need someone that knows what's in the closet, okay? Where your life is on display with them in a more private way. I found it to be very helpful to have brothers along the journey. And I would actually say that it needs to be someone of the same gender, because ladies, there's just going to be some things you're not going to open up with a guy about. And if you're married, like your spouse can be and should be your best friend and your person that you get completely vulnerable with. And this kind of thing can happen, but your main accountability, it's better off if there's another sister in Christ in your life, ladies, or guys, if there's a brother in Christ that can really understand and fully empathize with what you're going through. And so I'd say it's a both and. There, there's some ways that my wife holds me accountable uh, that my brother in Christ does not because she sees certain weaknesses within the home with me that he does not. And then, but then I go and take those weaknesses and, and, and those things that I have, um, you know, maybe in some ways that I've wronged my wife throughout the week and I'll go to that brother and say, man, I blew it this week. Let me, let me tell you. And so this can also take place in what's called huddles. This is what we will have at uh, Anchor Church, uh, same gender huddles that can fit in uh, a Waffle House booth. So we're talking three or four people max. And these smaller, small groups exist for prayer and accountability. And we come before each other and we just share our struggles. We don't just share our struggles in just group therapy. We're just like open up and say, this is what I'm going through. All right, there it is. We pray for me. It's I, I share my struggles and then my brother presses into me in love and says, well, have you done this? Well, have you tried this? Well, hey man, I'm thinking, look, I've, I've been there too. When I went through that, here's something that helped me. What do you think about that? And then we start to kick it back and forth a little bit. That is great accountability. It's all out of love. It's not meant to shame any of us here, but guys, if we're honest, we think about that situation and we go, man, that would just feel so bad or feel so, that would make me feel, guys, this is the enemy trying to get you to feel more shamed about what you've done because I'm telling you, there's something freeing about sharing your struggles in the appropriate context. That's why God designed us that way. That's why God made it that way. So James says clearly here at the end, he's tidying things up in his book and he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You know, there was this um, time in church history where confession used to be more public. Did you know that? That there were a lot of churches in the past, especially actually the earliest records that we have of like what went on in church, confession of sin would actually happen in a setting like this. Where people would actually just be honest. And they wouldn't unpack the whole cart and wagon and get up here for 30 minutes and, and just go into graphic detail and all that kind of stuff. But someone would step down here and say, this week, church, um, I got I to gotta confess the sin. I was enormously lazy. I, w- I was lazy this week. I was lazy in some ways. I knew God was calling me to do more And I said, no, I would rather just sit on my tail and binge watch 
X, Y, and Z or whatever. People would do that sort of thing. And they would do that with confidence and boldness that the people out here loved them and were praying for them. And there was just this vulnerability church-wide. But that is unheard of nowadays. We, we couldn't imagine doing that. There would be some of us in here, if we're honest, like, I, I, I'm not doing that. Like, I, I would not, absolutely would not do that because that's just too embarrassing. But again, guys, um, pride will remove opportunities to be vulnerable with people in your life. Pride will absolutely do that. And fear will absolutely do that. But fear and pride hold hands. They're always together. Insecurity, too, is in the mix. And so, confession. There's instances where it should be public. There's a way that that can happen. Again, not every juicy detail, but like I just modeled for you. Hey, guys, just being honest. This is what I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? And then there's that support. You know, um, well, let me just go here. Confession can free us from the heavy burdens, physically and spiritually, of unresolved sin. If there's unresolved sin in your life that has not been confessed, it will eat at you. It will destroy you from within. This is why the passage, if we can put it back on the screen, this is why we see that there's, there's, there's healing involved. Why do we confess? Why do we pray for one another? That you may be healed. Not only physically, there is a physical aspect in James's section here on this. He's talking about praying for sick people and them getting better. There is that, but there is likely a greater focus on the spiritual healing that comes through that. Because what happens when you confess? It's off your chest. It's not eating you alive on the inside. You've got somebody else praying for you or someone's else, you know, like your group praying for you. And you've got the power of prayer on your side. And you've got God working through those prayers now. You've got help. You've got community You've got an artillery of righteous prayer happening on your behalf. Real deep, genuine confession of sin, again, has been a feature, did you know this, of each and every great awakening in mass revival. What was the precursor of those revivals? Confession of sin. Lord, we have missed it here. We have, we have blown it here. We're sorry. Please forgive us and please help us course correct. Please help us get back on track to where we need to be. And guys, this is a daily thing. It really is. I mean, there are special times that a church needs to come together and a pastor needs to say, hey church, I'm just going to point this out. This is like, we're really struggling with gossip here. It's a bad part of our culture. I'm just going to call it what it is. We need to cut it out. And there's a time and place for that. But I'm talking in our each individual lives, each and every day, when is your time to come before the Lord? And even though Jesus has paid for your sins, past, present, future, even though he's saved you, maybe you're a believer and you're like, well, why should I even confess my sins to him? You know what this ring means on my finger? It means that I'm married. It means that I made a covenant with this woman right here, Taberly Flowers Henson, right here. Wave at everybody. Hey, that's my wife. I'm married to her. Um, we've been married almost 10 years. And uh, this ring reminds me that I made that covenant with her before the sight of God and, and friends and family. It reminds me of that commitment, but it also reminds me that I have a duty and responsibility and a holy obligation to own the ways that I have wronged her. Even though I know she's a gracious woman, I know a few people more gracious than this woman right here. She forgives me time and time again 
for being a total goober sometimes. Okay? I know she's going to forgive me. I, I know that I can come to her and say, sweetheart, I blew it. I'm so sorry. And I have to do that a lot, don't I? I mean, I, I mean like, I mean, it's daily that I'm having it. But, but she still tracks with me. She's so, she's so faithful. But, but here's, here's what I'm getting at. I know that that's the thing I have to do, but it doesn't make us unmarried to do that. Right? We don't, we don't stop being married because I've sinned against her. And that's where some of us are at in our relationship with God. We go, well, I'm already saved, so why should I have to go and confess again? Well, it's not that you have to. It's just that when we love someone, when we've made a covenant with them, we want to restore things. We want to make things right. And we've wronged someone that we love deeply. And so that's why we confess our sins to the Lord. Of course, there's a time in your life where you confess your sins to the Lord for the first time, where you say, Lord, I've never owned that. I've never owned the fact that I'm a sinner, but I am. And I need your redemption. And so confession, a huge part. I wanted to camp out there for a long time because it's an important part of where James is going. But let's go to the third effect. Let's hit this one real quick. Intercession. Intercession. And the prayer of a righteous person, let's look at the second part of James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. He's not talking about a perfect person. He's talking about a righteous person. Philippians 4.8. It's one of my favorite verses. Listen here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's a righteous person. A righteous person is not perfect, but has their eyes set on the right things. That's an easy way to remember that. It's someone, it's the Old Testament word blameless. It doesn't mean they're sinless. It means that their eyes are on Jesus and my aim is to live for him. Not perfectly, for no one can do that. But I am headed in the right direction. I am a follower. I'm a disciple. I'm a lover of God. My aim is the right way, not the wrong way. And the effects of a righteous person's prayers are massive. The Bible tells us again and again and again that someone's character is connected to the effectiveness of their prayer, which is something we don't always like to think about because that makes it sound like, I don't know, that makes it sound like it's unfair a little bit sometimes, right? Oh, oh they're better than me, so, so their prayers get answered more than mine do? No, it's that God honors obedience. He does. This is no prosperity gospel. This is no like if you're obedient to God, everything in your life's going to go great. You're going to have a Lamborghini, name it and claim it and all that kind of stuff. This is God will honor your obedience. And the person that is, and the person you want to be accountable to, let me just give you a practical accountability uh, wisdom this morning, okay? The accountability partner that you want in your life is a righteous person. I know sometimes we try to get someone who's like right alongside us. And there's some value to that. But I love being accountable to someone who I know is trying to track the same direction I'm going to. And if your accountability partner is someone who is not living for the Lord or says they want to live for the Lord, but does not consistently demonstrate that they want to live for the Lord, they are not going to be a great accountability partner for you. And we'll get into that in in a second when we talk about building up. The kind of accountability we need is righteous motives. Righteous example, righteous prayers, 
But then we have this idea of intercession. You know, that's what Jesus does for us. First Timothy 2, 5, that there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. Since we're in the series and Dustin asked me to share my story this morning. I did not believe that growing up. I didn't believe there was one mediator. I was taught from a very early age that there were two mediators. One was Jesus, the main mediator. But Jesus was often really busy, and Jesus didn't have time to hear my prayers directly. So there's this other mediator named Mary. And if I took these beads and held them in my hand, and bead by bead prayed a scripted prayer every single day, all the way around, the glorious mysteries, Hail Mary's over and over and over again, our Father. Hail Mary's over and over and over again, our Father. Hail, I mean, all the way around. If I did this, then Mary might intercede to Jesus for me. I trusted in another Savior and mediator. And this was the truth that was taught in my life. And guys, I would pray these prayers around these beads. Again, this, this called a rosary, it's devoted to Mary. Not to Jesus, to Mary. And I would pray the rosary several times a day. And I thought, the more I do this, the more God loves me. And you know what that yielded in my life? Emptiness. You know what it yielded in my life? The chains of religion were upon me. Dead religion. I used to wear this underneath my shirts. It's called a scapular. Have you guys ever seen these before? You, but you put it on like this. It's underneath your clothes. You, you get it blessed by a priest. And I, I'll read this to you. There, there's Mary again, like I said. Now, let me just read. This, this was my anchor. Whoever, whosoever dies clothed in this scapular, this cloth, shall not suffer the eternal fire. And I knew because I had a blessed one of these on, I was good to go. And that is a false gospel that could not ever save me. It never changed me. Again, all it produced was a Brandon that said, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I go to church. Yes, I got some memorized prayers going for me, but had no relationship with Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, at the very end, He says, hey, some people are going to come to me on Judgment Day and say, uh, Lord, Lord, we did all kinds of things for you. We did this, we did that. Why are we not entering heaven? And Jesus says these words that none of us want to hear. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. And about halfway through college, when I was in the muck and mire of my sin, again, tons of friends, Seemingly good life, a lot of things going for me, doing pretty good in school. If you looked at me on the outside, you go, man, that guy's got some good, you know, it looks like everything's going well for him. I was a mess. I had idols in my life that I was worshiping other than Jesus. And one of them was dead religion. And Jesus found me in the middle of that. And he called me from that darkness and he said, there's something that can be done about the sin in your life. Because I knew I was a sinner. I'd cried to Jesus many times and said, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. 
Please forgive me. But you know what I do the next week? I go right back out and do the same stuff. I never, I never demonstrated genuine repentance. Because you know what was true for me in my college years after being raised in empty and dead religion and being in the muck and mire of my sin? I was fine with Jesus being my Savior. But I was not fine with Him being my Lord. And when Jesus became the Lord of my life, it was July of 2008. I got asked to go on a mission trip. I had no clue what the mission was. I didn't even know what a mission trip was. I've never been on a mission trip in my life. So we're going to go love on homeless people. I said, okay, sounds like a great way to score some points with God. So I went. And I remember God just convicted me of my sin in a very unique way that, that, that week. And I knew that I needed to give my whole life to Him. And I knelt on a dirty gymnasium floor on an air mattress in downtown Atlanta on that mission trip and gave my life and heart to Christ. And guys, I've been changed ever since that week. And my wife was with me on that mission trip. And she, she can tell you who I was and who God changed me into being. I got a couple of friends from high school here that will tell you who I was before Jesus, and they will testify to you. I've got a buddy up front that played with me in a rock band for a long time, and it was a lot of fun, man. He'll, he'll tell you Jesus has changed me. Now, that's not a brag on me, but I will boast in the Lord all day long. And that's my story. I'm a life changed by Jesus. I'm no better than anybody in here. But I stand before you today redeemed. And the other thing that completely changed my life, and I would encourage you today, if you do not have a Bible, if you do not have a Bible that you love, that you can understand, that's a good translation for your, um, I don't want to say reading level like you're a child, but like I was not a, a reader. Anybody else in here just not a reader? I was not a reader. I needed a translation that was accessible to me. And so I bought this Bible. It's my first Bible, completely falling apart. And this Bible means a lot to me. I actually let a guy borrow it for a number of years, and he just gave it back. I'm so glad he didn't lose it. Um, but I, I remember picking this Bible out, and I remember just falling in love with God's Word. Nothing has changed my life like reading what God has to say to us and applying it to my life. I would encourage you with the same thing. It's not about being a Bible know-it-all. It's not about winning Bible trivia. It's not about feeling more this or that. It's about knowing God. He wants to speak to you today. He is speaking to you today through the sermon, but He wants to speak to you each day. Guys, let's pick up our Bibles. Maybe you, maybe you need to go dust it off. Maybe it's, it's on your shelf and you got to dust it off a little bit. That's, that's fine. Jesus stands ready to speak to your heart each and every day. He's ready. The fourth effect is this. And let's hit this real quick. Edification. This is for the purpose of building one another up. We just sing about building our lives on Christ, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Guys, this is accountability in our lives. We're encouraging one another. We're building each other up. So we're not only confessing sin, we're not only praying for one another, but then we build each other up. We say, hey, I know you feel awful about that. And by the way, um, there is something very holy about feeling the weight of our sin, about stopping. It's called contrition in theological terms. But what it means is that we not only feel sorry for our sin, but that we feel the weight of it. We really get the unintended consequences and all the outworkings of it. We understand how deeply it offends God. And we take time to sit in that for a minute and own it. It's the opposite of the prosperity, name it and claim it, right? Right? Name, name and claim it, get whatever you want. No, 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 no. It's name and claim that sin and go, 
that was the sin. I own that because I did that. Lord, I'm sorry. And then the encouragement, you're built back up. So it's almost like in, in accountability, we're deconstructed so we can analyze where the disconnects are and where God wants us to improve and some practical things we can do in our life. And then we take God's truth and apply it to our life and then we're built back up each and every day. Hebrews says it this way, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some translations say spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so this is like texting each other throughout the week and encouraging one another. Maybe it's time to pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, I was just praying for you. How can I pray for you this week? What are some things you're struggling with I can lift up for the Lord? I'm not trying to be nosy. I'm trying to love my neighbors myself. And have some people in your life that you do that with. You know, your accountability partner can see things that you can't see. They can see blind spots in your life. You need someone like that because we can't see 360 degrees. We need someone to tell us what's back here. Say, hey man, I'm seeing this. I love you. Hear me. I'm on your team. But I see that. And to me, it's an issue. What do you, what do you think, brother? Do you see it as an issue? And let's talk about it. And we have that kind of vulnerability and honesty and holiness in our relationships. Man, watch out, Satan. Church is going to get strong. But it starts with those relationships. And it's a part of our sanctification, right? We're being made more like Christ. And so the building up helps make us even more like Jesus. But let me do the fifth effect. It's my favorite one. Because there's always an opportunity for this called restoration. It's called restoration. Galatians uh, chapter 6. You guys just did a Galatians series, didn't you? In Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're bearing each other's loads together. Guys, life is way too much to do alone. Especially in this day and age. Especially with all the things going on right now in our world, with how broken and divided our world is. We, we need unity. We need healthy relationships. We need to model for the world what that looks like because the world has no clue what that looks like. If you disagree with me, you're not my friend anymore. I'm packing up my toys and I'm going home. It's what kids do. But it's what everyone does nowadays. If you don't think like me or look like me, I can't be associated with you. I can't have a discussion about it. I, I, I don't know how to dialogue about my differences. No, guys, the church has to be better than that. Why? Because we serve a God who's better than that. And he, guys, people, people will know who, what God is like through what the church is like. We are the body of Christ. Think about that. So whatever the church looks like, that's what people think Jesus is like. It's directly connected. But there's restoration and accountability. That's where accountability should always trend. We've talked through vulnerability, confession, intercession, edification, being built up within restoration. Hey, we're going to set you back on the right track here. The goal, again, is not to shame or embarrass, but it's to correct and it's to love. James chapter 5, the last couple verses. Look here with me. My, My brothers, again, it's a term of endearment. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
We're called in God's Word to anchor one another in the truth. And if someone is wondering, it is not just the pastor's job or someone on ministry staff's job to bring back a wandering sheep from the fold. The Bible actually argues that the sheep themselves, yes, it starts with the pastors, but it is also up to the body of Christ to bring someone back who has drifted off. You do you is not in the Bible. No, it's I love you too much to let you wander any further. And guys, it's uncomfortable. It feels judgy sometimes to do that. But it's not. It's loving. It's what Jesus would do. And we've got to act like Jesus and not be afraid of what other people think. As uh, James comes up, or as we're finishing off here, I, guys, I don't, I don't know where you're at right now in your life, but I just want to tell you something that would be really encouraging for you to hear this morning. I have a feeling that there's some broken relationships in your life or maybe just some brokenness that you're dealing with this week. And restoration is always possible. You are never too far gone. They are never too far gone. The situation is never too far gone. I was reading Matthew this morning in my quiet time, and Jesus just reminded me that the prayers of faith can move mountains. And that's not some cute poetic thing that Jesus said. No, He meant that if you believe that God can do it, and you offer up a prayer of faith, God says, I will move the mountain from here to here. And we go, well, what if God doesn't move the mountain? Well, He may choose not to because He's sovereign. Remember the things we talked about at the top? That's, that's why that's the foundation for the sermon. He may decide it's better for that mountain not to move, but we're going to believe like He can because He can. And He can do anything. So we're going to pray like He can. And then we're going to say, but God, I trust you. Whatever you decide to do with this. But some of you in the room this morning, you desperately need vulnerable, genuine, authentic accountability in your life. I need it too. I'm not here to tell you anything that I'm not already hearing myself from the Lord. It's been massively convicting for me. We all need it. So let's pursue it this week. As you're going throughout this series, connect with other people here. Speaking specifically to you impact folks that are here each and every week. Man, if you haven't connected with someone yet or, or, or if there's still someone that you haven't connected with, man, get to, get to know each other. Outside of church programming and all of that stuff, like, like get together, like go to lunch after church. Share your burdens with one another. Get real and experience the blessing of that. If you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior this morning, let me tell you, I was exactly where you are at right now. If you're not walking with the Lord, you can start today. If you know that you've sinned against God, if you believe that you're a sinner, and you know that you've fallen short of His standard of perfection, like we all have, and that that sin separates you from God, and you want to be brought back to Him and restored, you can be brought back today. How is that? Through two things. Repentance. Turn from the way you're going right now. Turn from living your own way and with your own standards and with your own law and turn back and head towards the way that God's Word sets out before us. Romans 5.8 says this, that while we were sinners, Jesus demonstrated His love and that He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. To forgive us of past, present, and future sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says He died once for all. Once for all sins. 
that you don't have to keep showing up trying to do more jumping jacks and hula hoops for God and thinking that that's going to make him love you more. No, you're already loved. But he wants to he wants to adopt you. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to save you and change you. Make you a new creation. And so the first step is repentance. The second step is believing in him. Not not just that he's real, but that he died on the cross for your sins. That he rose again from the grave to prove that he is who he said he is. And that he can and will change your life. Just ask him this morning and say, Jesus, take ownership of my life. My life is yours. I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. I accept your forgiveness and your grace gift. I believe you rose again. Jesus, change my life. Make me more like you. And you just pray that prayer to him this morning, or prayer just like it. Again, it's not the words, but it's the heart that matters. And Jesus will change your heart, change your life, just like he did me. And you can begin again. Thank you for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at impactharlem.org. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media. Once again, thanks for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast.